At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the seventh season of the Combustion Chronicles podcast, where bold leaders combine with big ideas to make life better for all of us. I'm your host, Sean Nason, CEO and founder of Mophie. As a maverick-minded, human-obsessed, experienced evangelist, I believe the only way to build a sustainable and thriving business is to put people first. Throughout this season, we'll be connecting you, the listener, with cutting-edge leaders in the experience world who are challenging old ways of thinking with bold new ideas and a commitment to human-centric design. Experience matters, people matter, and revenue matters. That's why it's time to ignite a people-first experience revolution. My guest today, Robin Daniels, has spent more than 20 years in marketing and growth leadership roles at such companies as Salesforce, Fox, LinkedIn, Matterport, and WeWork. He's a three-time chief marketing officer and a veteran of 2.5 IPOs, and he now serves as an advisor to fast-growth companies around the world. His areas of expertise, and there are many, include growth strategy, product marketing, communications and media, organizational design, leadership development, innovation management, mergers and acquisitions, leadership, category creation, brand building, and sales transformation. And to top it all off, he freely shares his expertise with his 29,000 followers on LinkedIn. Welcome to the Combustion Chronicles, Robin. Sean, thanks for having me. First of all, I'm really excited to be here. I'm a big fan of yours and everything you write, and I just love your style and your insights. So thanks for having me. And second, you know, yeah, that's, that's quite the bio. Yeah, I was like, like that, so yeah, I it. love it. <laughs> and even right now, you're focused on one of those talents. You're traveling, and I, I so appreciate you making time for us. Hey, I have to start this conversation, though, asking you something. How do you get involved in two and a half IPOs? I've never heard of a half of an IPO. So can you shed some light on that? There's a first for everything. You know, not every experience is a resounding success. So basically, in the last 20 years, I was based in Silicon Valley, and I worked for a lot of great tech companies. Some of you never heard of because they crashed and burned. And luckily, some you have heard of because they did quite well, Salesforce, Box, LinkedIn, and so on. But the first IPO was with Box. I was not the CMO there. I reported into the CMO, but helped take them public. You know, when I came in, we were maybe 200 people and we scaled to probably just over a thousand people in an IPO. Super fun, great experience. And I really got to see what it took to take a company public, even though, again, I was not the, the CMO at that point in time. Then the second time that it came my turn, I was at WeWork. And of course, you know, I came in right as <laughs> WeWork was scaling and growing and you know, get preparing for an IPO. And then unfortunately it all came crashing down. So it never happened, but man, we were close. I have, <laughs> still have photos on my phone from my trip to the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange as we were kind of preparing for our IPO, thinking about 
where does our branding go? What kind of party are we going to have? So it's weird, you know, being that close and then having it all kind of come fall apart just kind of a week or two later. So that was, that was both exciting, but also honestly, a little bit brutal. And then my next company, Matterport, and I was the CMO yeah. there. Luckily, I did manage to take them public, you know, sooner than I thought we were going to go. Actually, I thought it was going to be a little bit longer of a journey, maybe two or three years. But because of the uh, the tailwinds that we saw from COVID and, and other things executing well, we ended up going public about a year later. So it was inter- it's super interesting being back at NASDAQ probably about two years after I was there with WeWork and then getting a second go at it. And actually this time having it succeed, even though I don't feel like it's my responsibility that that we work failed. I, I'm sure I could have done some things better, but you know there were a lot of factors that went to that. It was still a point of redemption for me to be back at Nasdaq with Matterport, pressing that button, having that IPO moment. It was really fun, and it was something I will cherish for the rest of my life. So that's my two and a half IPOs for you. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's funny because I think I have a half of an IPO, but it's the other direction. <laughs> In 2017, I actually worked for an organization where we took the company from being public back to private. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, to, do a, to do a turnaround. And that was a very interesting. So I'm actually looking forward to sometime in my life to be in an IPO standing there. So thanks for sharing those experiences. And, <laughs> you know, Robin, we read in your your bio is so rich and, and the things you've done is so powerful. And, you know, the work that I do and our company Mofi does where we focus around the experience ecosystem. And, you know, your bio doesn't talk specifically about experience, but Experience is baked in so much mm-hmm. of what you do and yes. how you act and who you are as a person. And it's really central to everything. So customer experience is, is huge for us mm-hmm. at Mophie. Mm-hmm. And as a marketing person, once a company converts a prospect, mm-hmm. how can they ensure that the customer experience is good from the very start? That's a great question. I think, first of all, it's imperative that even though you're in marketing, that you need to really experience the end-to-end process. I think a lot of marketers, unfortunately, once they get into their job, they're quite far removed from the product experience, which means that you're sitting there and you're maybe creating content, you're creating supposedly training sequences or or sign-up sequences or whatever it is, based on maybe things that don't have any grounding in, in reality. So I think, you know, one of the things I learned early on in my career when I was a product marketing manager back in 2000 and 2001 is really getting to know the product super well. And of course, in product marketing, you tend to do that, but it really behooves everybody else in marketing to also know the product super well. The best marketers I've I've known, whether they're CMO or maybe they're VP of strategy or growth or whatever it is, they also take the time to learn the product and stay with it. Because once you have a full understanding of the product itself, then you can really focus on, well, how do you take friction out of every step of making somebody excited about that product experience? Because really what it comes down to at the end of the day is, I think of it as this way, there's friction at every step of the journey for a customer. Sometimes the friction is in the way you market, meaning is it clear enough what it is you're trying to sell to somebody? Well, that's a friction point. If it's not clear enough, people will never get what it is that you're trying to sell. That's something you can take out of it. Then of course, once somebody has actually gotten interested in what it is that you do, then they maybe go to your website. And if that's not clear enough, well, maybe that's a friction point. Once they go to your website and they want to sign up, and if the sign-up form is not even, you know, if that's a small thing, but it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a tactical thing, but it's so important. If the sign-up form is not clear or too kludgy, that's a friction point. Then once you're in the product and your first experience, if that's not easy enough, that's a friction point. 
And then once you're in the product and you've kind of gotten used to it, that it's the UX, you know, it, you know, simple and clear. Can you share it? Can blah, 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 whatever you need to do. And so at each stage of this journey, there's a lot of friction points. And I think the best marketing and the best kind of customer experience is about how do you remove that at every step of the way? And of course, that's a that's a combination of product, customer experience, customer success, marketing, even sales. Because again, friction at any points of those, that process can really kind of break everything down. And I learned that, especially, I would say, at Salesforce was a company, I think, did it really well in the early days. And we were competing against very large vendors, such as Oracle, as Siebel, Microsoft, SAP, companies who had way more resources, way more people, way bigger teams. And the way we came in and we said, you know, we are a different kind of company to do business with. Those kind of companies, they would sell you a solution, a CRM solution. And once you've bought it, honestly, they didn't really care whether or not you used it or not. You know, back then it was called Shelfware. Yeah. And because it was just like, you know, you'd, you'd buy something and you spend millions of dollars. And then once it's purchased, it's kind of like, ah, eh, we don't care. But Salesforce came in with a radically different business model, of course. But it's also a way of driving customer experience because we said we're a different kind of business to work with. You know, we only succeed if you're happy. We only succeed if you actually use the product and you can use as much as you want or as little as you want, scale up or down. And it instantly changed the conversation for us to be much more focused on their experience, not our experience. All the other vendors were focused on what's in it for me. And Salesforce came out and said, what's in it for you? We're going to take mm -hmm. that other tack. And it really instantly changed the conversation. And we were seen as a company that was much friendlier to do business with. And of course, now we take it for granted. Every company has a SaaS model and they model some way or another what Salesforce did, maybe even doing it better now. But I think they were really pioneers in kind of flipping the script on what customer experience was all about. Yeah. And that's a powerful story because I remember when Salesforce came out, it was early on in my career as well. And I actually just moving into corporate and I thought this will never work. Mm -hmm. Right. And now they're the model that everyone went after. And I love your perspective that you just gave us around the end to end process. I think that's a powerful nugget that we sounds so simple, but mm -hmm. yet we still so many leaders and you, you work with tons of leaders, Robin, all over the world as well, that they struggle with that. So I love that you are, are keyed into that and, and working with that. And I want to talk though, some about often people take some long journeys to get into experience work and none of us started out thinking we would work in experience, right? But you literally took a really long journey. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You moved from Denmark to the Silicon Valley without a job or even yep. a place to live. Could you tell us about that journey and what went into that that leads you to what you do now? And really, it is. I still say that you do a ton of experience work. The industry may not classify it that way, but I definitely look at it that way. So can you share a little bit about that journey? For sure. I've never wanted to be led by fear. And I've always wanted to be inspired in what I do and ideally have some impact and some positive impact on the world. And I saw just back in the in the 90s, just the advent of technology and how it was changing the world for the better. At least I still think it, it has for the most part and it can still do so. And so I always wanted to be part of that revolution. So I moved from Denmark. You're right. I didn't have a job or a place to stay. I never been. I, I didn't know a single person, but I never wanted to look back on my life and say I was too scared to do it. You know, I had the opportunity to go 
in a magical time. And I always thought, well, if I don't make it, what's the worst that can happen? I can go back to Denmark. It's not going anywhere. Go back and stay with my family. They're still there. And so I always was driven by more the potential of what could be than the like the fear of just like staying stale. So I moved over and I applied to every job I could find online. It was mostly through Craigslist. And there were some real random companies <laughs> I was talking to at that point in time. And it's interesting, Sean. Yeah, yeah, Craigslist. Yeah. You know what? It's still around and the UX has not changed at all. It's at all. Mind, mind boggling. <laughs> so I applied to every job I could find. I have this list actually. I still have it. I think I spoke to close to 20 companies. And you know what? Salesforce was on that list actually. I spoke to, but I remember I was 21 at the time. I felt it was so boring. Like CRM system, are you kidding me? Ugh. But anyway. So I ended up speaking to a lot of companies and I ended up getting two job offers at the end of those kind of job interviews because everybody was hiring and I ended up getting hired and I was hired as a web programmer. I was working for this VP of marketing to really design the website, manage it and so on. But I was working a lot with the engineering team, the product team on taking whatever they were building and kind of translating into something that was compelling in the website. And my boss said to me, she said, hey, Robin, you know, you're, you're okay with this programming stuff, but you're really much better with like positioning and messaging, you should be in product marketing. And I was like, what's that? I have no idea what product marketing is. And so I still credit her to this day with like seeing something in me and taking me under her wing and, and kind of giving me the start that led to the rest of my career. But to your question also, I think you know my whole journey then, if you take it from that point, going into product marketing, and then of course growing my career through the various companies, experience has always been a part of it. You know, I think of it as the best marketing in the world is really about providing these magical moments that surprise and delight. You know, and of course, marketing oftentimes is, is really at the top of the funnel when it comes to like somebody becoming aware of who you are and what you do, but also then of course, leading you through to actually becoming a customer. But we also of course have a huge impact on the rest of that experience. And, I, and some of these companies I've worked for, you know, they've all been in different industries, different sizes. I've worked for companies, you know, like Salesforce that grew from a thousand to 8,000 people, Box from 200 to a thousand people, Vera from eight people to 120 and getting acquired and so on. But so much of my journey has been trying to really put something out there in the world that makes it easy for people to understand and fall in love with what we do. Oh, I think of it this way. You know, I really have a simple mission if I had to distill it at the end of the day. And it comes down to three things. Number one is I have to create a brand that people fall in love with. Number two, I have to generate meaningful revenue impact. And number three, I have to be a good collaborator to all the key teams in the business. And that's sales. That's of course, customer success. It's the product team, you name it. But when it comes to the first one, awareness, you know, building a, a brand that people fall in love with, I think there are three stages to doing that. Number one is you have to make people aware that you exist. That's kind of obvious. So a lot of brands, they nail that. Number two, you have to make people understand what you do. And number three, you have to figure out how to make them fall in love with you. And that's a combination, that last one, of marketing, product, sales, engineering, customer success, you name it. Think about how many brands are out there where you know they exist. Yep. You understand what they do, but do you really love them? Let's just take a, an obvious one that's easy to rail on, you know, the airline industry, right? Okay, <laughs> you know, you know United, you know, you know what they do. Would you say that everybody loves United? Mm, probably not, right? Nah, I, I'm a Delta person, so right? no. <laughs> exactly, exactly, <laughs> Delta. But even I'm sure you know Delta say like they're not perfect either, right? Because no. they all have their issues. But but you know, you the under the point stays the same. So many of these companies out there, they think if as long as we get people aware of who we are, 
we've done the job. No, no, that's just the first phase. You also have to make people, of course, understand what you do, of course. But the last one is really hard to nail. And that is so again, showing up, consistently taking the friction out of it, surprising and delighting, being easy to work with. It's not just about the product, but also being an easy partner to work with. That's part of yeah. customer experience. Like the Salesforce example I gave you, there's so much to it that companies forget about. I'll tell you if I may share a story. Absolutely. Um, I had a I had an experience with an airline this summer. So I was going across Europe with my family and then we we're going to end up in London and we were going to go back from London to Copenhagen for two days. And then we're going to come back from Copenhagen to Colorado for a wedding. We we're going to fly through London. So we're going to fly Cop- no, back to through, through Europe to London, then back to Copenhagen for two days and back to London and back over to Colorado. But there was a strike going on. And I'm like, well, let's not risk it by going back to Copenhagen and then coming back two days later. Let's just pack enough and just stay two extra days in London. Okay. So I can call the airline up and I say to him, hey, you know, we're not going to fly from Copenhagen because it's a strike. Let's just fly direct. We'll just start our journey from London. So basically just cutting out one leg of the journey from Copenhagen to London. And they said, well, you're changing the journey. It's going to cost you a thousand dollars a person. I'm like, we're not changing it. We're, we're taking out one leg of it. You know, we're actually saving you because we're, we're taking out one less flight for three people. No, you're, you're changing the routing, but I'm like, we're still, I want to be in the fl- same flight from London to Colorado. It's exact same. It's just, I don't want to go from Copenhagen. No, it's going to cost you. I said, well, what if I just don't show up for the Copenhagen to London flight? They said, no, mm-hmm. then we'll cancel your trip. We'll cancel your trip. And I just thought to myself, here I am. I'm basically held hostage. It's all about them. It's not customer centric in any way. They didn't give a shit about really my experience. It's all about, can they make money and can they follow the rules, right? And it was just like, it's a classic example of being non-customer centric. And I guess it was, again, one of these eye-opening moments when I thought to myself, let me make sure that that never happens to any of the companies that I work with or work for. Well, and I think that the thing about that is what you said earlier, what's in it for me versus what's yeah. in it for you as a customer, right? And that is, I've had that same situation several times. Just, I'm like, no, like, just let's just remove a leg. And they're like, no, no. And, and now the price is adjusted and it's going to exactly, cost more exactly. money. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, this is not. Exactly. So it, it completely, yeah. completely, uh, uh, like, it's it, asinine. It's, it's all, it's it's it makes- and it's so antiquated and it's all about them and I, it just kind of infuriated infuriated me. I'm like, and I I like fly a lot, so I'm like one of these you know frequent flyers, elite flyers, and they could care less. And I'm just yep. like, well, if that's how you treat me, how are you going to treat everybody else? It's just it's just insane. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I love it. So I want to ask you a question about a trend because there was actually an article recently that came out in Forbes that said the five biggest business trends in 2023. Everyone must get ready for now. That was the title. Mm. Number one was accelerated digital transformation. Mm -hmm. Number two was inflation and supply chain security. Mm -hmm. Three, sustainability. Mm -hmm. The fourth, the talent challenge, which Mm -hmm. a lot of us have talked about. But this was amazing to me. In this article, as one of the five trends, they said immersive customer experience. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they talked very specifically about the metaverse and what mm-hmm. the metaverse is happening. But more importantly, there's actually a quote in here that says, the trend towards experience is so strong that brands like Adobe and Adweek are appointing chief experience officers to ensure that it is made a fundamental element of business strategy. And so one of the things that I have kind of been on a soapbox about is moving from experience management 
So let's even say from CRMs, experience management, Mm -hmm. to experience as a strategy, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How do you think that is going to impact people in, because I also hear, just went to a conference recently where people are saying the emergence of CMOs and chief experience officers are going to start to become one. Mm-hmm. And what are your thoughts about this trend? Like, it's hot. There was another article I read this week, too, about the biggest C-suite role being hired right now is chief experience officers. And, mm-hmm. you know, I remember the days when it was chief innovation officers. So, so, so what are your thoughts about that trend happening, especially from a chief marketing officer, where they're saying these roles are going to come together? It makes perfect sense when you put it like that. I had not read that article. Maybe it feels like I might have, but it makes perfect sense when you think about it, because experience is such a part of creating a brand that people fall in love with, like I just said, but also creating very strong word of mouth. And the best marketing engine you can create, of course, is word of mouth. But I think, you know, if I think about one of my favorite people in this kind of space who thinks about, you know, strategy and business law, Simon Sinek, he always says, start with why. I'm sure you've seen his videos, read his books and so on. Most oh, people yeah, the five why's. Right? Exactly. <laughs> but to your, like, like what you just said, you know, people want more experience, immersive experiences. That's the what. But why, why is it that they want that? We, a lot of times I think we get straight into the, what is it that we're trying to solve? Oh, you know, what we need to do is we need to increase our NPS or we need to uh, increase people, you know, people using our product. Why? Why is that important? So to the immersive experiences, okay, so what is, we, we know people want it, but why are we really trying to, what are we trying to solve for? What, why are we doing it in the first place? Is because we lack human connection? It's because people are feeling lonely? Do they want to feel closer to each other? Is it part of the community? Is it part of being closer to a company? Is it part of experiencing the world in, in, in a new way? Why are we doing this? And I think it comes back to, getting very clear, you can easily jump into trying to solve for the what without having a clear why. And I think a lot of times we end up going wrong. You know, and I'm here in London, actually, I'm working with Beamery, one of my, my favorite companies, kind of a, a talent management lifecycle platform. And I love what they do. And I love the team here. They're about 400 people or so, very focused on building a great company that stands the test of time. And one of the things I'm working with them on is a leadership course that will help develop their leaders, both their leadership level and also the the management level to really unlock the potential of everyone. And a lot of what we're talking about in this course is starting with clarity about what you're trying to do. All the other things will kind of fall into place if you have clarity. Don't get me wrong, all the other stuff is hard too, but if you don't have clarity from the beginning about what you're trying to do, a clear why, you'll be miles off in your execution. You might have the wrong team. You might execute the wrong strategy and so on. So, so much of it, I think, comes back to, to, to starting that way. So in terms of also your question around this chief experience officer and the CMO kind of, are they both going to live together? Are they going to merge? Depends on probably the kind of organization would be my guess. And again, I'm just thinking out loud. I think maybe if you're in a B2B organization, they might be two separate things because I think the the sales cycles and the channels are so maybe different, but in a consumer org, B2C, they might merge more. Again, I'm just because they're, the velocity of how you're actually getting customers onboarded is very different, of course, than in a, if you have a 12-month or 24-month sales cycle. Maybe they'll, they'll merge over time in the B2B world, but I think it's probably going to be a little bit, because I, I see the chief experience officer maybe as somebody who's working adjacently with the chief marketing officer on creating that. But again, I'm just I'm just kind of pontificating a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's fascinating because I see it just I see more and more articles every week around this this whole space. And 
So one of the things that I have come to love about you, Robin, is you seem to have a mindset just like ours. And at Mulfi, we talk about being maverick minded and human obsessed. Mm -hmm. And recently you shared a line on LinkedIn that I loved and You said there will always be tough moments in any job, and it's usually the relationships that will get you through it, which we we wrote a book uh, during the pandemic called Kiss Your Dragons, where we talked about radical relationships. So how can organizations help those relationships develop? I know you just talked a little bit about it, but especially in a remote first environment right now where we see that happening. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat it or lie. I worry about how that works in a remote first world. It's not impossible, but it's certainly harder. I mean, every every single leader I talk to says kind of the same thing. And it's one of those things that's not really popular to say because everyone's kind of like the public conversation is very much around remote first is so awesome. We're more productive, we're more happy, we have more freedom there, which I think is a lot of truth to. Don't get me wrong. I love also the freedom to work remotely when I when I I choose to, but it's very hard sometimes to build that strong cultural bond, the trust sometimes. I'll give you just an example from my own personal experience, probably the best one to relate to. In the nearly two years I was with Matterport. We grew the business a lot. We went through a pandemic. We scaled, took the company public, had to hire people. We had to let people go. The whole time, I'd never met anybody in my team in person. And it was damn hard to like build those wow. bonds of trust, build those bonds of camaraderie and feel like you're like really in this together. And I think we made it work, but it, I, I would probably estimate because we were remote 100%. It probably took three or four times longer than it normally did. So for example, I had some some people on my team we were very close, but I could tell there was a little bit of a natural like skepticism about each other when we came in. You had to kind of find your way, but we made it work, but it took probably a good six to nine months versus what maybe would have taken two or three months normally when you kind of go for a walk, go have lunch together, get dinner, get to know each other, talk about your family. The problem a little bit was some of this remote technologies. It comes a little stilted. I think, yeah. you know, it's a little hard to read body language as a leader, you know, one of your power hours, if you're a good leader, I think it's to read somebody's expressions and emotions and body language to kind of see how comfortable they are and then get them to try to open up so you can actually motivate them to do great work. And that's just harder. There's no doubt about it over remote work. I think you know when you're doing one-on-ones, it's probably okay. But when you're in a team setting, you're looking at a screen of five or 10 people, it becomes very, very hard to do. I worry about, about it a little bit, but also at the same time, I don't think it's impossible. We're, we're obviously learning to adapt. So I think the smart companies, how they solve for this, they lean into it. And they make it a priority. And what they do is they actually find moments to connect, maybe every two or three months, you know, in person. 100% remote, I think it's really tough. Not impossible, because I think a lot of companies make work, but I think it's tough. But I think if you can get people together every two, three, maybe four months and make that time around, you know, social activities, getting to know each other, less about the work itself. The work will take care of itself if there's a high degree of trust. And I think that way you break down some bonds that make it really much more of a delight and joy to work together, honestly. And so, so I think absolutely, you know, it's uh, these times that we live in, they're challenging for both, of course, the leader, but also for the worker, like figuring out how to like read each other, how to communicate in the right way. I've said this before, both you know, on LinkedIn and many other places. I think the number one skill that will either make you succeed or fail in business is your communication skills. And yep. so what has happened with the pandemic is suddenly we had to really radically learn how to change those communication skills or adapt them to a new way of working. Again, I think you know, two years in now, two and a half years in, we're learning to do it fairly well, but it was hard and, and for a long time. So communication now, there's of course lots of digital tools, but digital tools can't always 
support like the deeper conversations, un- like again, uncovering the why. I'm having a conversation with somebody who's struggling, who needs coaching, doing that over Zoom or Slack. Yeah, it's tough. hard. That's tough. Really hard. Really it's hard. hard. The very first episode of this season, we had a very dear friend of ours on Mark. He's a CEO of a company in Chicago. And what he did was they let go of their office space purposely and said all the money that we were spending on rent for our office space, we will now put into having company get togethers. So that remote first, just what you said, every two or three months, now they spend that money, bring them in for two or three days. It's not a stress on anybody. So I really love that. It's it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I see more and more companies doing that as well. And it doesn't even have to be global get because I get that's expensive. It's also probably not great for the environment if that's what we're trying to really be mindful of. It can be local get togethers, but also, you know, I've I've always noticed this is way even before the pandemic in, in my experience when I would be in the office, I would always notice the people who would sit by themselves at lunch and they would kind of like be cut off. And I always knew that they were kind of red flags for leaving. If you don't have kind of, I would call it a circle of friends an entourage Mm -hmm. that you hang around with, sometimes you're part of an entourage. Sometimes you might be leading. It doesn't really matter. But if you don't have a group that you feel like you're part of, then your motivation to stay or maybe even do great work sometimes can be, be lagging. And so in this remote world, you know, when I think there's an epidemic of loneliness, I just worry about it. But again, I also think so. So as a leader and as a manager, and even as an employee, you have to lean into it, recognize that this exists and then do whatever you can schedule, you know, one-on-ones with as many people as you can, you know, I know it can, it can be exhausting. So be mindful of that, but it's a great way of just kind of talking to people, getting to know them and sometimes force it to not be all about the work. Of course, yeah. you have to do work sometimes. And that's very important, right? <laughs> yeah. But if it's but all about I, I the love work, that. It's, it's not always. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not always about that. <laughs> no. Well, no. I have one last question for you, yeah. and that is: What advice do you have for yourself or for someone who has just started in a marketing role? And think back even twenty years ago. What would you tell you know Robin twenty years ago? What what piece of advice would you give? I would say. At some point, you have to really go all in. And what I mean is, if you really want to see your career take off, it doesn't happen if you just do the bare minimum or if you just do what's expected of you. And so you have to go all in. in. And what does that mean? It means you find the right moment, the right opportunity, the right project, maybe the right leader who you're working for. And you say, you know, I've been given this this opportunity to work on this project, or I see an opportunity to work on something that nobody's working on. I'm going to go all in. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it epic. And if you do that, it'll create such momentum for your life and your career that you can kind of go and maybe write your own ticket for the rest of your life, find great jobs because they will want you because you become known for something. So you have to find when you do it, what it is, and how much you want to give to yourself. You can't do it all the time because going all in, I think a lot of times can be super exhausting physically, mentally, it can be draining. But at some point, if you want your life to really take off, you know, you got to do that. For me, it was at Salesforce 2007 when I got that job. So that was already, I'd been in, in Silicon Valley for seven years. You know, I'd done good work. My career was slowly rising. But at Salesforce, I was given the opportunity to lead one of their products called Chatter. And I just gave it my all. I tried to innovate as much as I could, put out epic campaigns and programs and launches and I just like worked my ass off and it did create momentum in my life when Box finally came and found me, you know, after many <laughs> years at Salesforce, 
the line that they used on me was, whatever you did at Salesforce, come do it for us at Box. And so, again, if you do it well and you lean into it and you have fun doing it, it creates a lot of momentum for the rest of your life. So that that's my advice. And it's not that I, I mean, I, I appreciate that I did it. You know, maybe I should have do, done it sooner. That's the only thing. Right? So, so with that opportunity is given to you, go for it, man. It's go like, it. yeah, just go for it. I love that advice. I would probably say the same thing. So, wow, some great stuff here today on the episode. But um, it has come to that time when we start to close up. And we do these things called the combustion questions, Robin. And they're three randomly selected questions from my <laughs> from a human algorithm that I have not seen, but they were just passed on to me. And are you ready for your combustion questions? <laughs> Am I going to combust? <laughs> well, we'll see here, buddy. We'll, we'll see. see. All right, let's yeah. do it. Let's right. do it. All right, so combustion question number one. What's your favorite sea creature? My favorite sea creature, I would say the seahorse. And why? <laughs> I just think it looks like it doesn't belong in the sea. It looks so weird. <laughs> and I love it's it. Kind it's kind of a maverick like, of its own. It's totally kind of like, I, I, one of my favorite books of all time is by Seth Godin called Purple Cow. You know, he describes how a purple cow just stands out. And I feel like a seahorse just completely stands out. It's so yeah. odd looking. I love it. <laughs> so cool. So cool. All right. Combustion question number two. When it comes to drinking water, do you prefer tap? bottled or sparkling bottled and i have to ask why on that one too <laughs> because it's usually colder i like really cold water now if i could get tap water really cold i'd do that every day of the way to save the environment because I'm, I'm i'm trying to be as very mindful of that as possible but i like really cold water and a lot of times if water at least at my home it's kind of like lukewarm. It's not that exciting coming out. So anyway, for, and, in, and in Denmark and in Europe, I would say in general, we don't really do the ice cube thing. In the US, yes, I had access to ice cubes whenever I wanted, but in Europe, not so much. So it means I have to like chill the water for, it's just a big hassle. I, I would say bottled, bottled cold water. Cool, cool, cool. Love it. All right. Last question. This All one right. you might have to think a little bit about. What do you think about pencils? Pencils. I'm not a big fan of pencils. I hate that you have to kind of sharpen them all the time. I mean, I guess if it's a mechanical pencil, it's okay. No, I, would, I prefer like a, a good ink pen, I would say. Yeah, I'm not, I just, you know what? Being left-handed, which I am, I've never been a big fan of writing with my hand as much because it always smears, you know? I'm like, okay, pencil, it's not, it doesn't smear as much, but I prefer, much prefer typing on a no computer phone. I feel, I feel like my hand is all my hand is always all black or whatever color. I feel using, your so. pain. I feel your pain. Yeah. I'm a lefty too, and it's always. Yeah. It's always know, exactly, as I'm sitting exactly. here. My choice is a Crayola marker. So oh, yes. there you go. I don't know if that's any better. Well, <laughs> thanks so much, Robin, for being here on the Combustion Chronicles with us. And again, as you heard in the bio. Robin is very active on LinkedIn. Go out and find him, Robin Daniels, or you can connect with me and I'll make sure you're connected to Robin. But thank you so much, sir. And um, I look forward to having some more conversations with you. Sounds good. True pleasure, Sean. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Combustion Chronicles. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review. Remember that I'm always looking to meet more big thinking mavericks. So let's keep the conversation going by connecting on LinkedIn. If you want to discover more about human obsessed, maverick-minded experience ecosystems, go to mofi.co. 
where you'll find ideas and resources to help you ignite your own experience revolution. Or go to experienceevangelist.com to learn more about my mission to challenge leaders to blow up outdated siloed systems and rebuild them with an aligned human first approach. And as always, stay safe, be well, and keep blowing shit up.